as you probably know, Walt Disney was always interested in doing something different, never repeating anything. He was a cartoonist, animation. He wanted to build an amusement park. He did Disneyland. And then he was interested in doing other things. He sent some of us off to the to the uh, European uh, World's Fair in 1958. He sent some of us up to uh, World's Fair up in Seattle. In the meantime, his eye was on the New York World's Fair, where there's going to be um, quite a few companies and sponsors. And, and it turned out there was going to wound up being four. And Walt got all four attractions to do to open in 1964 and run it through to 65. One of the attractions, obviously, was Ford. The reason it was Ford is because Henry Ford and Walt Disney were good friends in the mid-30s, and the Ford Motor Company became the official car brand of the Walt Disney Production Studio in Burbank, California. We had little green trucks, big green trucks, and they were all decorated with an orange triangle, with a Mickey Mouse, with a paintbrush. So that's where it started. Okay. Then, when Ford is going to have Disney participate with them, and that started in about March of 1961, that led to several meetings back and forth in Dearborn at uh, the, the Ford headquarters on Michigan Avenue on the north side, the glass, the glass building, which we always called the Panic Palace. Ford was always in chaos mode. So when we visited there, we loved to go into the Panic Palace. Okay, so one business meeting uh, that led to the decision of Disney and uh, Ford to proceed uh, had Walt Disney and uh, HF2 and Benson and a few other guys in a room, and they had agreed that they will proceed if Disney can provide uh, an attraction that has moving vehicles with of potential Ford customers in the car. And they got that from the 1940 uh, World's Fair that Ford uh, had a little track and they had the new Lincoln Zephyrs, which was a really sexy car at the time. And they would have drivers driving uh, guests to the fair. But this time they wanted to do something where they could get thousands more people by not having any Ford employee drivers. So that's why they called Walt Disney and Walt Disney said, we'll do it. So in the course of this meeting, um, a question was asked of uh, Walt. He says, well, you're gonna have cars going around track and up and down and all that. How in the world are you gonna do it? And Walt immediately snaps. He says, oh, we'll do it like the booster brakes on our Matterhorn. They didn't know what in the world Walt was talking about, so he had to kind of explain it. If you've ever been to Disneyland and you've ridden the Matterhorn, you'll see booster brakes. What it is, in the simplest terms, a track will have embedded wheels driven by motors that the bottom of the cars, the Mustang included, would have a flat panel with curved ends on it called a platen. The platen would be a flat surface that would run on the wheels embedded in the track, contacting generally about three wheels at a time on the bottom of the car to uh, propel it and slow it down, speed it up, going around corners, up and down hills. Walt explained that, and then somebody in the meeting decided they didn't think this should be done Whereupon Henry Ford reached over and kicked the poor guy 
and the guy said, I immediately uh, second your uh, agreement to with with Disney. <laughs> so the <laughs> meeting ended. <laughs> Two days later, um, oh, Walt comes, uh, calls me up uh, and has me come over <clears throat> to the studio because I'd been had an office at Disneyland and says, uh, we're going to do uh, an attraction with the Ford Motor Company, New York World's Fair. We've got a couple other attractions we're working on. And... Um, uh, you're going to design the uh, the ride system, and oh, by the way, uh, you're going to use the booster brake uh, design off the Mannerhorn. Uh, see you later, Bob. Now Walt was like that. He would launch somebody into something, or a couple of people at a time, and then he walks off. That's no further instruction. You have to figure it out now. What are you going to go do? Normally, I would choose a mechanical system that I'm going to use, like my monorail, things like that. But this was the only job that Walt handed me the attraction content, what it's going to be, and then told me how it's going to work. So I didn't get a choice. <laughs> you with me so far? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. All right. So the way we start is, number one, Disney is going to do a show. They are also going to design a building with a, a local architect. And the show designers in the Disney studio, they're like animators, artists, and everything. So designing a show is, you know, pretty much standard Disney. Designing and building a building with structural engineering, civil engineering, and all that working hand-in-hand -hand with an architect uh, following Disney's design, which we develop in, you know, little models, is pretty much standard stuff. We also had standard stuff, I would say, because we, we designed rides, amusement rides. So this was going to be yet another amusement ride, only this one was going to use real automobiles going up and down hills and making right and left turns. And they're not ride vehicles. Oh, my God, what am I going to do? Okay. You're with me now still? Yep. Yep. Okay. So. Remember, with my boss, my boss, his name was Roger Brogy Sr. He always gave me a long leash, but, you know, would be there to help and administer, uh, you know, all the business side of stuff. But I was basically uh, had a access to a drafting room where I had some drafters that, you know, would be assigned to me and said, well, draw up whatever Bob wants, because I do the master layouts. I do all my own drafting first. But in this case, I had to contact vendors with uh, no uh, Disney purchasing department uh, help. So I helped myself to the various suppliers of components that I knew we would need, you know, like electric motors, gearboxes, uh, urethane wheels, all that kind of stuff. And then immediately had to start figuring out what kind of material we would have on a platen that would go under these, these cars. And the next step was to ask Ford to please send me a, a big car and a little car for me to take a look at how are we going to adapt these cars as a, as a ride vehicle, like an amusement ride. So I needed access to them. And guess what? They sent me the prototype uh, Lincoln four-door convertible, a handmade car built over at the special process lab over really where you know, the Ford airport used to be. And they sent me uh, also the number one um, 61 Ford convertible, hand-built car, 
at uh, Alex Tremulous Design. Alex Tremulous, a good friend of mine, all those years. And these cars were, yes, they're cars. They're prototype cars. And prototypes, you don't want to run them much, and you want to get rid of them quick to go into a <clears throat> pre-production, you know, pre-production cars, you know, that then lead to more prototypes that get up to production prototypes, and then you get into production with a pilot plant. So these were two of the raddiest looking cars, behaving cars I ever saw. I drove the Lincoln up to weigh it. We'll see how much it'll weigh. That it drove like a wet sponge. <laughs> Four doors going all which way at once. <laughs> car weighed quite. Car weighed quite a bit. It's a pretty heavy car. So I started with that and figured I got to get the weight down. I think it was 4,200 pounds, something like that. I got that sucker down to 1,900 some pounds. I pulled everything out that except anything that held the wheels on the car. And the, we did the same in the um, Thunderbird. And uh, we figured the smaller cars, which is basically the, uh, the little Comet and, the, and of course, the uh, Falcon. Uh, those were the four uh, body platforms we had to deal with. The next step was to figure out what attachments do we put on the bottom of every one of these cars. And that, that proceeded very nicely. I had a pretty good idea what we'll do. I had a pretty good idea by that time. Reliance Electric uh, gave us a good bid on the motors. We had a local company called Airroll that built uh, wheels for uh, aircraft industry. So I had wheels now. Uh, but the details of the bottom of the car, I didn't have. So I asked Ford, I says, can you give me full-size drawings of the uh, at least one car, which I chose the um, Ford, uh, not the Galaxy, but the, the you know standard uh, full-size Ford. So I had these uh, hand-drawn drawings out of Ford, which were just like looking at gold, but it told me what everything is at the bottom of the car, where everything's got to go. And then in the course of this, Ford reps that we were working with, the guy says, oh, we're going to have a new car by the time this thing opens in 64. Uh, I think they're going to call it a Mustang, but Mr. Iacocca says it's something like that. So my ears perked up. That was the first I ever heard there was going to be a Mustang. Okay, by October 62, I'm pretty deep into the engineering, and I said, I really need to see the bottom of a Mustang. And they said, well, we only have one or two. They're over in the special process lab on, on, uh, on the boulevard there. And I said, uh, well, I need to see it. And I said, well, okay, fly out, fly up. And I flew to... Uh, Flew up there and went in a hotel and met the, you know, the Ford rep guy. And I saw it on a hoist. It was orange. And it was like, ay, 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 Ford is going to build a car like this? Oh, I pretended not to be interested in the car because I'm, I'm there for to measure everything on the bottom. I took all the time in the world to uh, measure everything that I needed while taking a peek at this car only because it's on a hoist. So that was my first meeting with the Mustang, October uh, 1962. And then the Ford guy that was our rep, he says, Bob, you like cars? You used to work here. Yeah, I used to work here. I was a Ford stylist, you know, advanced styling and worked in Lincoln. He says, we got another hot car. You want to see it? 
And I said, sure. And he says, come on, it's uh, offsite. We're going to go up on Michigan Avenue out on the west side. And we got a secret shop. And we'll take you over there if you don't tell anybody. He showed me an ACS with a Cleveland 351 being stuffed in it. And he says, this is the car. We're working with Carol Shelby. And I said, well, I know the guy. I met him and uh, I met him in October 55. And uh, he says, well, Shelby and uh, and uh, and HF2 made a deal. And says, yeah, you tell us what we need. And we'll, we'll build it. But we can't build it on our property. So I saw the very first Shelby Shelby car actually being built out of an AC Ace, which was a lightweight car, interesting suspension, and a 351 stuffed in it. So in one trip, I saw two of Ford's most fabulous cars with my own eyes. Saw it just like that. Okay. Are you still breathing? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just listening. I'm, I want to be quiet and catch everything. So, no, we're, we're breathing, but I think we're doing it through our side gills. So, okay. <laughs> All right. All right. I keep going here. So, the development time you know, to, to design a big attraction like this does take quite a bit of time. Uh, I won't discuss further the uh, artistic uh, area of the show or the building or anything. I'll concentrate just strictly on the cars that I had to do, which includes Mustangs, because we had the four different uh, basic uh, platforms. We developed a test track here uh, with the two uh, terrible cars, the Lincoln and the Thunderbird. And we uh, That track, I got it built really quick out of the Disney studio. We had like a racetrack size course, long enough to have a speed belt in order to test how long does it take for six people to climb in and out of passenger cars? Because we're used to how people climb in and out of ride vehicles that are custom made. And I, I guessed at how long they would take, you know, the slowest people. And it was okay. We figured out length of the belt and that told us, okay, that's the first answer. Number two, how does my uh, um, steering system work? Because I had a, a slotted track with a uh, arm on the front of the car attached to the front cross member connected to the tie rods. And this uh, had a, uh, a vertical post that went down with a wheel on it, riding inside this uh, slotted track. And that would steer the cars. And of course, the, the rear trails, you know, on a, on a car, and then you have to maintain the Ackerman steering principles with it at the same time. Uh, first test was excellent. We decided to proceed and um, go to a second track for the second phase to experiment with uh, adding more cars, uh, adding more uh, electrical propulsion systems, and at the same time, figuring out what kind of track materials that would be used, whether it's concrete or steel or whatever, uh, that we would actually put in the uh, Ford Pavilion at the New York World's Fair. At this time, I was having terrible difficulties with materials for the platen and the wheel. There's, uh, there was all kinds of issues to do with, you could use rubber, you could use neoprene, you could use urethane, and you could use aluminum, different uh, materials, but we would get into uh, a noise problem. There would be uh, squeaks and all kinds of things that were just not right at all. So that became the our first big difficulty. So I tried a number of materials, and I found out that if you take masonite, you know, which is a hard, you know, that hard-pressed masonite, there's a smooth side, and then there's a rough side because of the way they make it. And I thought, how about upside-down masonite? 
attached to an aluminum uh, honeycomb uh, structure, for, you know, like a flat thing. So it's got a smooth curve on the front, smooth curve in the back, because it has to engage and disengage the wheels. So I found a um, kind of a neoprene material, and the upside down masonite was dead silent and had really high friction, just perfect for going up and down a hill. The only bad part was, since it's a composite, uh, uh, you know, made of, you know, like laminated fibers, it has a little bit of fuzz that comes off. So we had to invent a upside down masonite fuzz collector device <laughs> that we used for two years. And I, it's just like a, um, you know, somebody sweeping the track with a broom. Well, this, this machine will go around and do that for us. So we got. We never did wear out the masonite on the bottom of these cars. So there was a crazy answer. Also, the next thing, we're dealing with wheelbases. With a Lincoln, uh, it's a big, long wheelbase car. Uh, the um, Falcon platform, which is a Mustang, uh, was a short wheelbase car along with a Comet. And those two cars trail entirely different as they go around the right and left turns. What that meant was we have to maintain the contact between the, um, the platen and the wheels in, embedded in the track, and you can't mount the motor and the wheel rigid. It will not work that way because you, as the vehicles go on and off the wheels, uh, you start to lose uh, traction, and that is not good at all. The other thing, the wheels have to accommodate the fact the tail end of the car is has this erratic trail and you don't want it to slip sideways. So I come up with a gizmo that says, we got a cradle, it's a steel welded frame and inside the cradle, I'll put two Lord mounts to keep it in place. And then I've got a spot where I'm gonna use dog chasing balls. I found a, a rubber type material that was about three inches and two and a half inches in diameter of the right hardness that would give us what we call a roll around, um, roll around carriage that would allow these wheels to fit the path of any wheel-based car on this attraction. So this attraction, as a mechanical machine, was kind of weird because it had two unique things that had to be figured out, and those were the only two that I ever had to figure out. Everything else was very conventional stuff, you know, nothing, nothing being invented at all. So uh, the agreement was uh, Ford would proceed, and we had an electrical specification, which they didn't like. So they handed it to Ford's um, purchasing uh, budget cutters, and they chopped it way down, and they went with the lowest bidder in America. Oh, my goodness. My heart was broken because we had a system that worked so beautiful, and now we had a system that uh, used uh, just standard, uh, standard uh, frame 56 motors. And the problem was when you start up a hill and you start down a hill with cars of different weights and different amount of passenger weights, the cars do not follow each other exactly. That means the fatter, the heavier car doesn't go up the hill as good as the Mustang right behind it. That meant we got into the business where the bumpers would start to bump the cars. And that created a problem because this was before bumper standards. And for example, the Mercury, the front bumper, would kill the taillights on the back of the Mercury's. Ford didn't even have a car that could 
survive without killing itself. So <laughs> this was very funny uh, to everybody except Ford because they had they brought in a, a dealer to come in and fix taillights and fix uh, damaged cars every night uh, during the testing. But guess what? On opening day, everything was ready to go. One of the Ford guys said, let's get some baseball bats and some yellow uh, some yellow ribbons. And they went out and bought all the baseball bats in, um, in, uh, between, in Queens and Brooklyn. And they came back with reams of yellow ribbons. Every corner had a nicely dressed uh, Ford personnel in a suit with a baseball bat covered with yellow ribbons. Every time a car got close around the corner, he would surreptitiously reach out and put the bat between the bumpers on the cars to keep the taillights from being eaten up by the following car. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> I'm, still, I'm still laughing. Well, here, here now it gets even funnier. I'm in charge of the ride, so I'm there through all the testing and everything, and I'm all dressed up. And uh, as you remember the, the, uh, the from the model, the pavilion, our starting position and the control station for the ride was facing a, a street down below, which was where the motorcade with Lyndon Johnson, president, was going to pass by shortly. And the Secret Service took one look of a bunch of guys with baseball bats looking at them. <laughs> <laughs> the Secret Service came up to talk to us. Oh my it got me so I got me so mad I walked off because um, this was it was it was a crazy crazy day you know we're we're gonna initiate Mustangs to the world we're gonna get this ride to work Lyndon Johnson's gonna be there for his you know launch appearance and the guys have baseball bats with ribbons <laughs> okay that's that got it up to opening day but just be just before a couple of months before we had to load in the very first cars ford also decided we only need one elevator to service the cars not two guess what broke the first night the elevator the elevator, the elevator. <laughs> uh we had just enough cars on one of the tracks in order to uh, test the ride for the very first first time when you go to turn that on i think it might have been january to turn it on, and we, we ran it a few minutes, and uh, that was all working. And then somebody said, I hear terrible crashing. And we went to the elevator, and there was a red mercury convertible going down in the elevator shaft slowly, being crushed, and its windows popped out. And Ford didn't know what to say because that's the only elevator they had to finish loading all the cars on the track. But... But the ride actually ran, and when I turned it on, you know, the control guys from Ford, you know, were all there with uh, Federal Pacific Electric, and turned it on for the very first time, the cars all moved. And we did it for about 15 minutes, but right after it started, I heard some horrible screaming. I said, what in the world? It echoed all over the building, and then somebody said, shut it off. Let's go to the party. What party? My boss looked at me and he says, Robert, we're going to the Ford launch party. It's in a nearby motel. The site I saw of full-grown employees of the Ford Motor Company 
getting drunk in total relief that this cockamamie Disney ride system actually worked in the face of the Ford uh, assembly line division had their own design, which was never going to work, which I told them, it won't work, stop, uh, mine will work. They never believed Disney at all. They were so relieved that all this money, all this time, the freaking thing worked. <laughs> but we had a hell of a party. They had hors d'oeuvres and booze and everything. And back in those days, you know, everybody, Ford drank free martinis over the Dearborn and all that kind of stuff. So Ford had a great launch. Uh, we had very, very little difficulty for the two years, other than, you know, some ongoing repairs and the usual thing with people climbing in out of the cars. And then uh, it just it just sort of ran and just uh, did everything it was able to do. And then we, it ran again for 65. And, and uh, meantime, Mustangs were selling. And it turned out Mustangs, I believe, were slightly over 400,000 for the launch year. Um, and the Mustang has boomed ever since. Yes, it has. I, I wonder if you don't mind go back a little bit to uh, when you were putting in the cars and the track. Um, I kind of remember I I did I've done I've tried to do some research. Uh, I love getting back into the history and and finding the little little stories about things that why they you know why certain things happen the way they do and what have you. As they say, you know, every car has a story, and every event has stories. Um, but wasn't there a situation where you were inside an engine engine bay with a hood down? Oh, oh, yes. Uh, I had to make sure that each one of the cars, you know, the, the long chassis, short chassis, that the steering was going to behave correctly, that we weren't going to get into a position where, uh, as we made the turns, that the long chassis, for example, would trail a little bit different and the steering angle would get pretty tight. And the one thing you don't want to do is to have things drift around a little bit where you actually run a... Um, a tie rod and a, and a uh, steering arm up hard against the uh, against the um, uh, the upright on the between the knuckle and the upright, and to do that I had to uh, ride uh, on on top of the plat platen in the Lincoln because the other small cars had motors in them, uh, and it was a great place so I could uh, you know watch and check with a flashlight and everything so I was totally satisfied that uh, we're not going to have anything unusual there. And I always leave the hood up when I was doing that. And then uh, one of our uh, head Imagineers, a guy by the name of Marty Sklar, who uh, you know passed away a few years ago, Marty and I knew each other quite well, but we're both kind of sarcastic characters. And Marty saw me riding around in there because he had to be there the day that we were putting the marks on the track to cue the um, uh, cue the spiel with the uh, sound system in the cars. Because Ford, uh, Ford was using his own voice, and we had four, four push buttons so we can pick any four languages. But Marty was the guy that had to spot where the cues would start and stop in order to run uh, the sound system inside the car. So that's why Marty's there. He saw him in there, and a car came around to where he was working, and all of a sudden the hood closed. You know, big bang. And But luckily my head was down. So a few more minutes went by. I made a couple of laps around, and I kept yelling, "Marty, Marty, stop! You know, open the open the car, open the car." And I I think I rode for like a half hour, 
uh, round and round and round. And everybody was laughing. They said, oh, man, we got Kurt right where we want him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. But anyway, you know, some good guy, they finally stopped the ride and opened it and let me out. You know, so Marty and I had a couple of words, and that was that. Well, it just I had I had heard about that and I thought that's just typical of coworkers <laughs> that know each other. A little, oh, little yeah. a little a little as they say, innocent fun, but of course it's a memory that you have forever and it's a great story to share with people. This this is kind of the things that go on. Because when you spend that much time and energy together with groups, sometimes it's nice to do something like that just to kinda not, not that there's tension per se, but it's just a, you know, it's a relief. It's a little fun. It's an outlet valve, valve as valve as they say, a little bit to it. So that's I just I'd heard about that. And I said, well, if, if I have a chance to have you on, I want to want to find out the the story if that's actually something that uh, you know, urban legend oh, or yeah. the real thing. So that's it a great story. Yeah, well, there's uh, the I would say the overall relations with Ford. And Disney were very, very good on the site. Uh, only after Disney people got used to New York people. Number one, one of the big problems was we hired, I believe it was Brinks. Uh, no, Pinkerton. We hired the Pinkertons to guard uh, raw materials coming into the site every night. And then a lot of the material never got delivered, they told us. And they says, no, he got delivered. The Pinkertons uh, signed for it, and it's in there. It's got to be there. And then Disney went out with the cameras at night, and we we video no, we we made films of the Pinkertons uh, picking up the material and loading it in their own cars to take oh, back. Oh, jeez. Oh, <laughs> uh, but the, the Pinkerton guys—they were good guys. They were fun. I used to have brown bag underneath the track when we're building it. Because Ford didn't want to pay for asphalt uh, floor underneath the building. So we just had piled dirt everywhere. And guys go down there and, with their lunch buckets. And then, of course, you know, they don't finish the lunch. So they just throw the trash wherever it is. And these great big uh, Norway rats are on the ground all the time. And so the rats are uh, finishing your lunch for you. And then one day I'm sitting there with a, with a uh, Pinkerton. And the guy says, yeah, look at, look at the size of that. Look at the size of that. He pulls out a gun. He says, Bob, watch this. Blam. <laughs> I saw a rat explode right in front of me. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It, but it just, it's just the way there's a kind of an informality with New Yorkers. In fact, uh, we got good relations on the shop where I could not tell a worker what to do, but I could tell his um, his lead what to do, and then he could tell them. And the guy was very good. He walked me over, and he says, yeah, these are the two guys you want them to do the wiring the way you want. Yeah, those are the two guys. Okay, okay, guys, this is this is Bob. Okay, now he's not going to tell you because, and you're not going to listen, but he's going to tell me, and then I'm going to tell you really how to do it. And we'll tell we had a good time. And then the guy, I think that was the guy, and he says, Bob, you're you're a Westerner. You have got to speak correctly. So he coached me in New York Royals Fair. New York Royals Fair. <laughs> oh, my goodness. How funny. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, I would say the, the industrial relations were very, very good, but it had to be a cross between the seriousness, the time of it, uh, the theft of it, and getting the job done and nobody hurt. 
Well, no, it, uh, yes, something especially that size and the mon monumental effort that's going to take from so many different directions, uh, from Ford and from Disney to make this happen. It's 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 a as they say a Herculean type of a task. Uh, but as long as everybody's on the same page, like you say, that's what makes it happen. It makes it work. And sometimes people have to you have to kind of a uh, what's the word I want you have to adjust yourself a little bit. And like you said, you had to, you had to learn how to speak New York. Well, that little bit probably made your life a little easier, uh, but yet in your world, and, and I, I'll be honest with you, I'm from California too, and I know uh, living here in the South for the last 20 some odd years, I still have people come up to me and they say, you're not from around here, are you? <laughs> It's like no, <laughs> yes. no, I'm not. I'm actually from the left. I'm the left coast. I'm a left coaster. And he goes, oh, okay, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. Because sometimes some of the words. And there's times my my wife is from the south. There have been times I have to ask her, uh, uh, Michelle, what what does that mean? I I don't understand that 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 terminology or that phrasing. So different dialects. But sometimes, especially New Yorkers, um, they 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 can it can be it can be very humor, very funny, very humorous. But sometimes it can be a little frustrating too. So it's you know two of one half to the other, especially with when it comes to unions. So I wanted then, if you don't mind, it's okay. The, the the events going on. I'm assuming everybody had to be happy with your results. I mean, obviously it speaks for itself, but I'm assuming everybody was as far as Ford, Disney. Uh, your staff, you, you, because I know the customers seem to be, and I say customers, the, the guests at the event, um, they seem to be very pleased with it. But did you feel that satisfaction that everybody seemed to feel about it? Yes. In fact, uh, it was such a complicated uh, attraction, to, you know, quite a few years in building uh, compared to the you know, amount of time we would spend with our own park, uh, you know, up to that time. Um, so to me, it was a, uh, a, a long multi-year project. I never worked that long on a project, but, but I'm, I'm used to going from the very first words, Bob, you're assigned, you're going to do it all the way to what we call in this business, uh, opening night. In other mm -hmm. words, the, your opening night, the press has got to be there. Uh, the buyers, the sellers, everybody's there, and we're not having any technical issues because mm -hmm. that would fall in my bailiwick if, if that stuff kind of failed. The rest of the show is quite conventional. We had lighting, audio, set direction, uh, animated figures, that sort of stuff, which to us is just sort of, you know, the ordinary trade. We never really had any uh, serious difficulties with it. You know, the dinosaurs, sometimes, you know, they they kind of wear a few skins out a little bit you know so we have to patch up stuff like that but i never did get much feedback from ford on anything that was uh negative beyond the ongoing uh, repairing of cars that bump because uh, it turned out we only used the baseball bats on opening day wow. uh, so we had we had to live with the fact that we had cars that all designed and built by the same company would crash into one another with quite a bit of uh, predictable damage. Uh, and somebody made a lot of money in, uh, in on body work and paint work during the nights. But that all came about because Ford saved so much money by going with the uh, Federal Pacific Electric, uh, the cheap bidder, rather than using the system of respacing that we'd already figured out that, that uh, avoided the problem. So I think it was an economic thing that, uh, you know, paying 
paying a local shop to, you know, paint and repair at night costs a lot less than paying more for an electrical system. So, um, uh, but I never personally heard anything negative back from anybody because I was good friends of people in Ford. You know, Gordon Beurig, who was a body engineer for the Lincoln Mark II, I, I met him at 52. He was lifetime friends till he passed away. Alex Tremens, the same way, a crazy designer. He's the guy that designed the Tucker originally. Worked at Ford in various positions and then and eventually retired. I think they fired him, what they did. They couldn't. Alec, Alex was quite a character. Look his name up someday. But uh, yeah, he, he was such a good friend, he and his wife. So uh, Disney and Ford, uh, we had a great relations following on uh, for years. And um, the only thing is a little side issue um, that uh, I'll share with you. When we were getting ready to do our uh, big Epcot, uh, you know, the, the, a new theme park called Epcot, that was Walt's dream, and that seemed to take forever and just wasn't getting anywhere. Um, it wound up that uh, as we were starting to do this uh, Epcot project, we needed sponsors and we weren't getting anywhere with sponsors. So I went to Marty's office one day and I, and I said, you know, you guys are preparing some presentation boxes, very beautiful boxes, you know, like velvet lined with all the printed material, official sponsor uh, request. Uh, and they, I think they have maybe four of the boxes to, to try out on vendors or, or sponsors. And I had just met the vice president of General Motors, uh, Bill Mitchell, you know, a car guy. And I, I'd met him before. And I met him at uh, Art Center College uh, in the case of, uh, you know, school of, you know, official opening and everything. And I said, I says, Bill, do you know what an Epcot is? And he says, no, tell me. So I told him what it was. And he immediately saw in his eyes, which I found out later, he wanted to do the Race Driver Hall of Fame in uh, in Florida because he was a race car fiend. Uh, anyway, I said, oh, well, we, we got a proposal uh, information. I'll get it to you. So I go back the next day and I tell Marty, I says, Marty, uh, here's this address here. This is Bill Mitchell. And uh, please send him a box. And Marty just blew straight up. He says, Robert, you don't understand. Don't don't get in our marketing business. Ford <laughs> is our target. Ford is our target company. You don't understand. I says, yeah, but I just promised the vice president of General Motors you're going to send it to him. <laughs> well, Marty and I, uh, we had some bad words for a couple of weeks there. But guess what? Bill Mitchell, well, he had that crazy uh, Roger, what's his name, uh, that was the chairman of the board at GM at the time, um, immediately jumped on Roger and says, we got a, we got a hot one, uh, thing we're going to sponsor for Disney. But he didn't tell him it was just really for his race car, uh, you know, race car Hall of Fame. But anyway, uh, within a couple of weeks, uh, GM people were coming out to Burbank, and we were going back uh, to uh, GM. We're out Milford, Proving Grounds, all that kind of stuff. And the two companies uh, made a business deal so fast, it would just make your head swim. Uh, and it got finalized within uh, not too many months. And then the minute GM signed uh, GE and uh, uh, RCA, a whole bunch of other companies immediately signed. But uh, but Disney had been looking for a, a launch sponsor and Ford was not basically interested because they'd already done a deal with us once. 
And now um, General Motors is hot to trot because of another reason. And we didn't quite understand all that, but that's how it came out that Ford was not a participant in Epcot. Mm. And I think I think as Ford was happy to, uh, to stand aside on that one after all. Well, that may be the case. I did I did want to mention a little story to you, if I may. Um, going back to the uh, the World's Fair, um, we every uh, na- you mentioned the, earlier in in our con- your conversation with us about April seventeenth that you were there, and of course Lee Iacocca is there to present the Mustang to the world to the journalists, um, and obviously he did that actually at the World's Fair five days before the World's Fair actually even opened. So that was mm-hmm. kind of kind of a neat because he had all the press from the world there, so he could actually have a chance to talk to all the press from you know from, from international, national, uh, entertainment areas, all kinds of different levels of uh, marketing. But um, when the event, when the World's Fair did open up, we, uh, well, I'm sorry, I misspoke there. So on April 17th, the museum here we have what we have what we call as National Mustang Day. Uh, we started this process some years back, and the idea is that take your car, your Mustang out, that maybe you would normally not drive to work or take your kids to school or go go shopping, but on 17th of April, we own that date, let's go take your car out. And so we have a fairly good size event here at the museum to celebrate that. And this, yeah. this past uh, April, we had National Mustang Day, and our, our keynote speaker... It's a, it's a gentleman by the name of Art Hyde. Art is retired from Ford, but he was the chief engineer for what became the 1994 Mustang, which is the fourth generation of Mustangs. You're right. And so he was talking about, uh, he opened up his, uh, his presentation uh, about how he became involved or how he first saw Mustang and how he became where he wanted to be involved with Mustang. He said, at the World's Fair... He and his brother and his parents had gone to the World's Fair, and the parents apparently had asked, told the two boys, you stand in this line, and we'll, we'll be back, but you stand in this line. Well, he said it was a rather long line at the Ford Pavilion. And of course, it, you know how it does the serpentine back and forth. Uh, oh, yeah. the, it's very much a, it's a Disney standard at their rights. Of course, uh, but uh, they, so he uh, he waited and he waited, and so they, when they got into inside the building area, they could actually see the Mustang that's on the platform in the water, and yeah. I, I actually I have pictures of that in the museum. And so he see he just kept looking at that car, looking at the car. He's nine years old. And he says to his brother, "I don't know how, but I'm eventually I'm gonna be in charge of that car." And he pointed, <laughs> "I'm in charge of that car." And he and he, he he kind of said, you know, here I am, nine years old. He goes, I'm saying something. I don't even know what that means to be in charge of that car, but of course that <laughs> that 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 image and that that trip to the new to the Ford Pavilion really guided his life to say and got him involved with Ford and very much involved with creating this with the fourth generation of Mustang. So it's amazing some of the side stories a little bit what motivated a person, what connected with a person. But what was done at the World's Fair in the Ford Pavilion has done that and has shaped a lot of Mustang enthusiasts and people who went to work for Ford. So I just wanted to kind of share that a little bit that it had. It was beyond more than just a, you know, an, a, an attraction and a ride. To some people, it was just like, wow, this is, this is, this, this is what I want to do. So I thought it was kind of an interesting story because uh, Art just recently retired and now he's an associate professor at University of uh, Michigan. 
um, doing doing you know engineering type of work, of course, or or as you say, teaching. So it's just you know the, the, the you're you're not that you per se put that car on that display, but you were a big part of making that ride itself or that attraction something. It had a big influence with some important people from Ford. So I just kind of thought I'd share that a little bit with you because it had it was uh, it was uh, more than that. Oh, that's a very sweet story because I do remember that day and the car sitting, uh, you know, on our little, little, like a round tuffet in the water there. Mm -hmm. And all the Ford executives all lined up. You know, Iacocca with his cigar could put on the biggest smile you ever saw. <laughs> the guy was, guy was like in the, in cluck, cluck mafia mode. Oh, right yeah. Oh, he was so proud yep. to do that. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, all the Disney uh, guys were all there, you know, and then, uh, you know, and I'm sort of uh, not too much with the executive thing, but uh, they made sure. Who designed this thing? Oh, that's Bob over there. You yeah. know, it, you know, and I look kind of youngish because I was, uh, you know, I was only, uh, hmm, yeah, third, coming into the 30s, yeah. Uh, oh. And here's the, here's the goofy thing. I'm not an engineer. I've never gone to engineering school. I wow. did everything by learning, starting with the auto shop in high school. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, you, you must have learned well. <laughs> well, it was it was it was a bit awkward because we had uh, we had uh, quite a bit of uh, like almost monthly meetings. Uh, fly back to Ford and talk to uh, plant engineering. Uh, there were some good guys there They, you know, they shared a lot of ideas, but there was a couple of guys, they felt that Disney could not do this because they're in the business of moving cars. They even took me out one day to several, uh, assembly plants to show me the overhead conveyor system, uh, which was, uh, their supplier was Jarvis B. Webb company. And we would go talk to the, you know, the web representative, but I just kept saying, no fellas, no, this, uh, uh, you're approaching it from the wrong direction because basically they had a deal where they were going to have one motor with a string of gearboxes, maybe you know six or eight of them, all in a big string with variable speed gearboxes um, strung along the track. And this thing would, would be a hornet's nest of a thing to do. Uh, and they finally just quietly, they weren't working on it one day when I was there. So I thought, well, we didn't come to blows on that one. They just sort of decided by themselves that, well, they better not keep talking about that one. But that led to the fact that they still had total disbelief that this would ever work. And that's why they all screamed when it actually ran. <laughs> well, I, it surprised I, me. I thought somebody got hurt because I, of course, I know the darn thing will work. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know. I know. Sometimes there's a lot of pressure, of course, when in the corporate world, and you know, if they're if they're laying their corporate life, so to speak, or their corporate work on yes. other individuals, is it's just that right. it makes them a nervous Nelly, as it were. Uh, and plus, the fact, I, and I, I'm going to give you kind of an, my a thought is, and with Ford, of course, it's it's a, you know their coat and tie, very professional. Uh, I will say now, back I'm from what from the photos that you see from the past. It's always you mm -hmm. know coat tie, very much corporate look, 
Uh, but I can imagine being that with, you know, being here, we're talking about the Disney company from the West Coast. Uh, but you guys are probably a little bit more too casual for these guys. You probably were a little bit more, wow, look at this. These guys from California, they're coming in with these polos and these nice khakis or what have you. Or, you know, I imagine there's a little bit of even, I don't know if the word would be envy, but there certainly would be noticed. But you know, but, but you know what the funny payoff was? Since uh, we, you know, Disney guys, generally, except maybe a couple of executives, uh, were not the uh, Brooks Brothers suits, tie and black shoes all day long type of guys. Right. Uh, but the benefit was, as I was mentioning earlier about the uh, the construction workers, you know, the ordinary uh, blue collars all over the place. Uh, it, it, it was sort of our entry to them because they they didn't see us as suits and ties they saw right. us as guys right and and we could immediately start joshing around all the time particularly the guys installing the disney animation up um you know up along the track and going to do different scenes and uh, they had a really really good rapport uh with a lot of joking and you know rough language and all that and somehow our guys we had already been in the construction mode since 1955 out in the dirt with uh, vendors and construction and all that. So when we're assigned to the Ford Pavilion, this is all, this is our standard world. That's the way it is. So, so uh, we had a great time. Well, it probably, it probably helped also that you learned how to speak New York. <laughs> Cause I imagine yeah, that, well, that, that kind of broke well, the ice a little bit too. That would well, help. As you heard twice a few minutes ago, I still have my accent, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I do ha I do have one last question, if I may. Yes. Um, it's something I probably should have asked earlier, but I, I was just curious, how long did the ride actually take? Uh, that's one thing I can never find any information on is how long did that ride actually take to go through and from, you know, start to finish um, on the, in the, in the Magic Skyway? Uh, I don't know, remember exactly what it is because, you know, I, I know it had 17, 714 motors on two tracks. Um, I think it was somewhere around eight minutes. Okay. It was a very, it was a very, very generous ride. I think one of the longest attractions, General Motors had a nice attraction. They had to put a lot of people through it, but it didn't have the dynamism of, dinosaurs you know and cavemen <laughs> yeah uh but i i think it's, it's somewhere around the eight minute mark normally we do attraction uh, we're looking at three to four minutes uh, you know for a typical attraction because we want the throughput you know hourly throughput sure uh, sure but this of course was you know a, a a world's exposition you know oh yeah no 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 absolutely but that's why i was just kind of curious because of course you know we had a long line so you had lots of cars lots of people you're having to move a system it's just you know it's a, it's a, it's a hard to imagine all the pieces to make all that to work smoothly and effortlessly because uh, you you don't hear stories about problems with the with the, the ride itself or mechanically so obviously it worked out very very well and so I was just curious you know how long of a ride because I imagine with all those cars you had to go through also that that was going to take time to as they you know as they are spaced along that track so I was just curious what the time frame was. So yeah, yeah. So uh, that's something I would have to somehow go back into whatever records uh, we've got out here on the, the West Coast to try to know what that was. But uh, that's my best guess. 
No, hey, we're good. We're good with eight minutes. If it comes from Bob Gurr, you know, eight minutes is it's good enough. That's fine. Absolutely fine. So, Bob, I cannot thank you enough for joining us. Uh, this has been something I, like I said, I've been excited to have you on and talk uh, because this is something. Uh, there are some, you know, there are some. I think you have a book out. I know there's some articles out, but I think all at the same time, it's just you know to hear from you and get to hear the stories. And uh, some of the background is is such a pleasure and it is so meaningful to the Mustang world because I cannot tell you how many people come in the museum and they'll tell us, hey, I rode that ride. I did that ride. Yeah. You know, they they tell us they're proud of that. That's a big part of their hobby or their connection to the hobby. Yeah. The part that I really remember in the opening days is people would be in line hoping with their fingers crossed that the next car that comes with the doors open is the Mustang. Well, I heard. Oh, they wanted that car. Yeah. Now I heard from again. We have guests that come and they talk to tell us their. You know, they like they love to tell us. You know, car guys love stories, and so when we have visitors, they'll tell us that they were at the World's Fair. They rode this and they rode that. And one gentleman came and he said, and I asked him what year it was. He thought he was pretty sure it was 1965, not 1964, but 65. They had created two lines. And so as you got up there, one line is if you wanted to ride the Mustang, one line was for everything else. <laughs> they, oh my God. They said they had to because they had such a backup because they kept going back to the line, which, well, you're next. No, no, I'm waiting for a Mustang. Well, you're next. Nope, I'm yeah, waiting for a Mustang. Yeah. And so they yeah. actually had to create two lines. And so that even created kind of a new a new thing as far as car, as far as ride attractions is, well, I'm, gonna, yeah. I'm, I'm waiting for this one. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. And so that, <laughs> that did happen from what I understand. Oh, yeah. So, I, I remember that. Yeah. Absolutely. So, no, it, it's such a piece of Mustang history. Um, I cannot begin to tell you how important it is to the hobby. Um, it, it really, it really is. And of course, uh, of course, uh, in the Mustang world as we understand it, Lee Iacocca made it very clear that this Mustang had. They were they. The reason they did the World's Fair was because of the Mustang. That's what we were, we've, we've been kind of read and told that his goal was to make sure that Mustang was ready to be introduced in April because they were going to build and spend all this money on the, on the pavilion to make that car the, the, um, the centerpiece. And so that's uh, why, um, that's why it was very clever because, um, uh, that was the first time somebody took a a very bare bones base compact, which was the Falcon platform. mm Mm-hmm. Which uh, thankfully uh, was very conventional. The uh, the um, Chrysler product was uh, you know kind of a so-so car, and the Corvair went off with the rear engine thing, which was horrible. <laughs> but thankfully, Ford in those days they had engineers that were so cost-conscious for tooling, because mm-hmm. um, uh, you know there's other stories. Those guys showed me all kinds of stuff. They showed me a pilot plant. They showed me uh, how they do a lot of stuff. So I was always amazed to uh, learn stuff about Ford. But luckily, uh, the decision-making that wound up with this high-production, low-cost tooling uh, Falcon platform, that was the solid gold decision because they were able to, able to make the Comet line out of it. And, uh, of course, the you know putting the top hat, the Mustang uh, the body on that, and uh, have a, a low-cost car. That looks sexier than hell, and it had a V8, and you could get it with a stick. Uh, that that went into the market so much that uh, General Motors got got 
caught short, and then they had to spend a little more, more time developing their car twice. Uh, in the meantime, Ford just took off like a shot. And then, of course, a few years later, we had the little red fastback. Every time I rented a car, I went I went, went to Avis or whatever, and I see, you got a Mustang fastback? That's what I want. Oh, neat. That's great to hear. That's great yeah. to hear. Well, Bob, thank you so much for your time. I, I Again, I cannot thank you enough. This, this is going to be awesome for our listeners to be able to kind of listen and hear from you and and, and be able for, because you the stories right. you've shared with us. So, so yeah, right, I, always, thank you. Yeah. All right. I'll leave you with the last last comments. Please. Uh, if, if you haven't already, go to uh, Instagram and look at my Instagram site. I have 34,000 followers, and I'm ni almost 91. <laughs> I have a Facebook one, too. I also have, I'm represented by Fandom Productions. My manager and I, we sell Bob Gerr branded products. <laughs> well, uh, let me ask you this, Bob. Oh, I, I was going to ask you this when we got off the air, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I, well, I guess yeah, um, I'm going to ask this. Do you do you still travel a bit? Do you still get out? I mean, fly to places or, or go to go to oh, things? Absolutely. I I just got back two weeks ago from uh, thirteen days in Spain because I oh my goodness I wanted to ride the Virgin Virgin Voyages uh, a Valiant Lady, which is a radical new ship. Okay. Uh, and that was my that was my uh, sea cruise number forty six. Yes, I do get out and do stuff. Um. I, I, I have a red Cannondale bike. Uh, I do a 12 miler uh, on the flats uh, every week. I used to be a mountain biker when I started in 68. And at night, here's what I really do to avoid crossword puzzles. I have an X-plane flight simulator and I fly airplanes and helicopters at night on my home flight simulator. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, so, wow. Uh, I, I, I am very current. Well, the reason I asked is that, uh, and, and I'll be honest with you, Michael, uh, he told me that he said you, you're you'll be one of our best guests we've ever had. He just he just flat told me that right out the beginning, and I, and I can see why. Of course, I, I definitely. Yeah. Um, and not that I'm trying. I don't want. I don't want. I'm just going to put this out for you, maybe for you to consider. Um, if and again, this is for next April. I would love to have you uh, take care of expenses, what have you, see if you'd want to come out and be our guest speaker at the next National Mustang Day event here in uh, Charlotte. Oh, that would that would be an honor of honors to um, uh, to do that for you, uh, especially uh, that you could kind of make kind of a cool day out of it. And then, uh, oh yeah, I don't yeah. ever, I don't ever seem to wear out answering questions for people that are truly interested. Well, Michael told me, he says, I don't know how old you are, Steve, but, but Bob will run circles around you. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll be, uh, I'll be 91 in three months. Okay. Well, good health to you, sir. I got to tell you, good health. <laughs> right. Well, what I'd like to do is as we get further down the, in the, into the year, maybe, you know, reach back and talk about something, see if this might be something of interest, because I know our guests would just be, it'd be ecstatic for them to be able to, to, to meet you and listen to uh, your the presentation that we're doing now, but still just to have you here would be just awesome. So, um, let's, uh, if you don't mind, maybe, you know, a few months from now, as we get into fall, just kind of, you know, just send back, I'll send out an email with some, something that will tell you a little bit more about what we're doing and we can go from there. Sure. Anytime. Just, uh, just give me a buzz. You, I cannot thank you enough. You're such a gentleman. Thank you so much. 
Okay. Ja. 